Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Saturday, September 5th, first half of the U.S. Open third round in the books, and boy, has the third round delivered so far. It's our first round where we get to see some seed-on-seed matchups, and we were treated to a couple of battles, folks. Obviously, it feels like a slam when you're up until 1.30 a.m., and, you know, they're battling late into that New York night. You can hear the subway train blaring in the background, and that's what we were treated to last night in a battle between Stefano Tsitsipas and Borna Chorich. Of course, we're going to get into that match, talk about the rest of the day's fantastic results, a very next-gen-centric day of results, and obviously here at Cracked Rackets, that's something we always enjoy, so looking forward to talking about that. Of course, we continue to see the Pair 11 story play out, Benoit Pair testing positive for COVID-19, 10 other players in the event deemed to be in his vicinity close enough to where they were put into advanced protocol. Of course, Ben Rothenberg and I broke that story earlier in the week. If you want to read more details about that advanced protocol, go check that article out on our website. But, you know, we, we learned yesterday there was a delay in the Alex Sphere of Adrian Manorino match. Manorino, one of the pair 11, and, you know, there was a huge dispute whether they were going to even let him take the court for his third round match or not. I'll give you the details for that. Talk a little bit about it. Christopher Clary of the New York Times reporting uh, the details of what happened, and so going to talk about that a little bit later. But of course, want to focus on the spectacular tennis and then preview our second half of the third round, day six action here on Saturday. Recording this at 1.30 p.m. East Coast time. Apologies for the delay. It's obviously been so much tennis. I did take the opportunity late last night watching Tsitsipas Chorich. Uh, turns out I am still 24, so I can still sleep in. Didn't hear my alarm. Ended up being later than I expected when I woke up. Anyways, that's a little side note for all of you listeners, but still do want to talk about the action, of course, because it was a spectacular day of tennis. And the reason we are able to talk about these day, uh, these daily exceptional days of tennis, really, uh, here at the U.S. Open day in, day out on this podcast is because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobarn. Again, you know the deal by now. Look good, feel good, play good. Midwest Sports, Aerobar, your tennis game. Go to MidwestSports.com. You'll find everything you need. Grips, grommets, rackets, strings, shoes, shirts. It's all there, and it's all the latest and best brands. You've got Nike, Adidas, Wilson, Head, Babolat, Dunlop. It's all on there. Anything you could want, you can find it. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. And best of all, that free can of Wilson extra duty tennis balls. They want to make sure you have everything you need to make your return to the court a successful one. So go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. With Aerobar, that's gonna where you're going to feel good. You're going to get your nutrition in the spot it needs to be to play your best tennis because Aerobar, the only tennis-specific energy bar in the business, more potassium than a banana, delicious cinnamon ch- uh, delicious cinnamon honey oat and chocolate chip flavors. They're both so good. I have put two of them together and taken a double bite to get the cinnamon honey oat chocolate chip flavor that got stuck in my head. I just revealed that to you. That was a little Freudian slip, we'll call it. But seriously, they are that good, folks. Go to aerobar.com. Use the promo code CRACKED15. You'll get 15% off your order. Uh, But with that in mind, let's get to today's matches because, again, it was a great day of third-round matches. We also had some second-rounders finishing up after the rain we saw on Thursday night. And 
Those matches turned out to be tremendous. I want to break down one of them to start today's podcast because Katie McNally is a player we've seen a lot of here at Crack Rackets. By the way, in case you can't tell, it's just going to be me steering the ship today, much like me uh, sleeping in. We gave Jamie McDonald the day off. Rest assured, he and Maddie Stacks are going to be joining me this weekend to recap week one, to preview week two, all of the fun stuff we want to do here at Crack Rackets to continue to have you prepared for the next week's matches. And of course, if you want to hear here are picks for day six. You want an extensive breakdown of that action. Go check out the Great Shot Podcast Ace of the Day I did with Steve from Ace Previews. If you are into tennis and you have been for a while, you've certainly read some of Steve's work. And so we get into the nuances of gambling and tennis. What are the best plays? Who are the best players? The most valuable events? Where can you find your advantages? It's some really fun. It's a really fun conversation. So uh, be sure to go check that out. We also did it last night at like 1130. uh, And I was getting looped in it, and I think you'll hear that in a good way. It's a very fun podcast. So with that in mind, though, again, McNally Alexandrova. McNally someone we got the chance to speak to when we saw her at the Young King Scholarship Exhibition in Top Seed uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, when we were there in early July, and McNally looked good. She came back from a set and a breakdown. CeCe Bells was serving for a match against her, and Katie McNally beat her there. She played Jess Pagula really well in that event, and obviously McNally, someone who is ascending towards the top 100 in singles, someone who is already so clearly a top 50 player, but in my opinion, a top 20, top 15 doubles talent in the WTA game as well, and just such a well-rounded skill set, and what you like when you watch Katie McNally is just how certain she is, how confident, how decisive she is in her game plan. She's looking to hit a big serve, hit a big forehand, and move forward. She's looking to slice her backhand, keep you out of rhythm, but she'll drive through it. She'll keep you honest and go down the line, and you know, she's very decisive with her returns as well, and She just played a really clean match against Ekaterina Alexandrova, a player who you all know. I am a a big fan of her game. She's been a top 15 player in 2020. Uh, Really outstanding form from her. And, you know, she knocked off Kim Kleisters in round one. And, And in this match, the rain delay came after the second set, so they had split, and it shouldn't shock anyone that this match went to a third set breaker. Katie McNally, 4-6-6-3-7-6 over Alexandrova. Look, for Alexandrova, the firepower is undeniable. When it looks right, it looks so good. She can just blow you off the court. She's going to be fearless with the shots she chooses to hit. She's just, she can also, I mean, it can get erratic, and in this match, it did. 30 winners against 47 unforced errors, and, you know, her serve can be a weapon, but in this match, 59% on the first serve. That just wasn't good enough against a Katie McNally, who in this match made 67% of her first serves, won 69% of those points, but most impressively, 20 of 35 on second serve points, 17 of 25 at the net, and that doesn't count in all of the approach shots she hit where Alexandrova committed a forced error. Of course, for Katie in this one, 20 winners against 24 unforced errors. It was just a clean, decisive match from Katie McNally. McNally, who again, you talk about McNally and for her coming into this event, obviously for McNally, the 19-year-old, uh, she's ranked 124 in the world coming into this one, but now that she's made the third round here, uh, obviously her ranking is going to go up and you look for her where she is at currently in the live rankings, Katie McNally, by making the third round here, uh, you know, she is currently sitting at number 120 
with this result. And, you know, that does feel a little bit low, right? You'd figure maybe she'd take a bigger jump than just four spots. But for right now, 120. However, another win, she advances today over Mertens. And that's a really tough ask, you know, to, for any young player to beat someone, particularly someone playing as well as Mertens. But she'll crack the top 100. And that feels about right. And you're looking at some of the names who have moved up. You know, I'm seeing here Layla Fernandez, who at 17 years old, she's up to a new career high of 96. Var, uh, Varvara Gracheva, no, 20 years old, she's up to 93. Kaja Yuvan, 19 years old, up to 102. Ann Lee, 20 years old, up to number 111. These are all career highs. Marta Kostyuk, up to number 119. That's three off her career high. They're coming, folks. And all of these young women are so talented. And I, again, I will acknowledge the fact that I'm 24 here. Have I really been a tennis fan long enough to experience and be aware of a generational shift happening in the sport? Sort of when Djokovic, Murray, Del Potro, Chilich to an extent, I suppose Chilich, Del Potro, a little bit younger than Djokovic, Murray, but you know, they, when that generation really came to fruition, that was my first generation of tennis players. Yeah, I watched Roddick. Yeah, I watched Federer, but those new guys were the first generation I locked in on. It never really happened on the men's side, right? Raonic, you know, Dimitrov, Nishikori, uh, they had chances, but they, they never really broke through at the Grand Slams, never ascended to number one in the world, that's not going to be happening on the women's side. I mean, we've already seen Naomi Osaka. We've seen Ashley Barty. We've seen, you know, Bianca Andreescu work her way to the top, obviously, as a slam champion. I mean, all of these players are so, so, so good, and there are so many of them, and they all do so many different things. And, you know, again, Katie McNally belongs on that list, and this sort of win for her to reach a third round of a slam to beat a tw- the number 21 seed, but realistically someone who was playing in top 15 form, it's an outstanding win. And it's just, she's a player right now who is maximizing her strengths. And there are flaws, you know, there are times when she sprays, there are times when the backhand slice gets a little bit overwhelmed or that finds the bottom of the that, but the things she does well, she does so well. She It's such elite skills, and it's such a different skill set. The big forehand, the way she covers the net, the way she is so decisive when she's at the net, cutting off volleys and putting them away. I'm so impressed with Katie McNally. I will continue to be impressed with her. Again, I'm leaning towards Mertens, who is one of my favorites entering the tournament. That's nothing against Katie McNally. I think it's going to be a great match. I think given Katie McNally's game style, she can beat any player on any given day if she plays her best tennis. That's, again, the sort of elite skills she has. Uh, but at the same time, I just it, it's a really tough matchup still. Third round of the U.S. Open, major win for Katie McNally. It just reaffirms everything I saw from her. When you saw the level at the Young Kings, you said this is a top 100 player. She is proving that here in New York, and it's a great result for her. But with that, uh, quickly, let me go through the rest of the second ra- other second round finishes. Iga Swiatek comes back in her match against Sasha Vickery. You may remember if you follow tennis Twitter closely, after that first set, Vickery took it 7-6. Swiatek can be heard destroying a racket, which we always love to hear here at Crack Rackets. But, you know, she ends up bouncing back here the next day, taking two sets, 6-3, 6-4, to win this match. That's a really good follow-up win for Iga Swiatek, obviously, after she knocked off a seed, and I believe Kudermatova in round one. So good for Sviatek. She's going to have a battle in her hands now, though, against Vika Azarenko. Really excited to see how that one unfolds. Another next-genner who we enjoy, Courtney Mute knocks off number 23 seed Dan Evans, uh, ruining one of my aces of the day. But to be honest, I'm okay with it because 
I was so impressed with young Courtney Moutet, who clearly could handle all of the junk Dan Evans threw at him. Evans playing backhand slice, going down the line, moving forward. It didn't matter. Moutet, about 5'9", 5'10", lefty, but just so creative on the court. Tracks down every ball. Is going to, you know, force throw up a lob and say, okay, you want to beat me? Make this overhead. I'm going to throw it high in the sky, and you're going to be about at the baseline playing it. Good luck. If you have the huevos and the skill to make that overhead, you beat me. But on this day, Dan Evans lost confidence moving forward, and when Dan Evans loses confidence moving forward, it's obviously such a crucial part of his game. I mean, Courtney Mute was too good, and he's, you know, 5'9", 5'10", but sneaky pop, not afraid to go big down the line. You know, I mentioned that Evans slice, Mute, the lefty, Evans would be slicing down the line to the deuce side, but... Mute would just slice it right back with his own backhand and throw in plenty of junk, plenty of short angles. It was it was a really fun match to watch. Just different tennis, not just ball bashing. It wasn't Rublev or Berrettini tennis. It was it was crafty. It was a really fun match and a really well earned win for Mute. Four six six three seven six. He wins the breaker. They came out. Evans won a long like twenty ball rally to hold for six all. That was their first point of the day. Uh, Mute then wins that tiebreaker down four one in the fourth. Mute comes back, takes the fourth in a tiebreaker. That's a really impressive win. And then Elise Mertens, the 16 seed, uh, straight set win over Cerebus Tormo. Again, her and McNally, no day's rest for either player. So, you know, not an excuse for anyone, and it should be a really fun match. But with that being said, let's get to our third round matches. And I would not be doing justice if I did not start with the first third round match Uh, talking about this third round match first, excuse me, and this is why my brain is scrambled because I was up so late into the night watching this one, and I mean, it was puzzling, flabbergasting, it was something, and let's get right into it. Borna Chorich, a five-set win over Stefano Tsitsipas, 6-4, Have to start with this fact. Tsitsipas was up, I believe, 5-1 in that second set. If not 5-1, 5-2, but he had six match points in set number four. Six match points, and he blew them all. And when I say blue, I, I mean that legitimately. And I don't like to, you know, rag on players. Sometimes it's just not your day. But he made five unforced errors on those six match points. And, you know, they came on his serve. And for Stefano Tsitsipas in this match, it was just, I don't know what to even say. I mean, he is always going to be an eccentric guy. He is always going to be someone who wears his emotions on his sleeve and is very animated on court. And that's part of his charm. That's why we enjoy him so much. He has a flair for the dramatics. He's a guy who wants to hit the big shot moving forward, but then follow it up with the diving volley. He's a guy who wants to, you know, hit the ridiculous on the rise, down the line ball, and then knock it off beautifully with, again, a cross-court volley. Or he's a guy who does have the huevos you want to throw up a lob. That's fine. I'm hitting an overhead on this because I have faith in my overhead. He's got that intangible quality to him where he's playing to win at all times. And yet in this match, I mean, Borna George got his confidence to waver. And there was a moment there, and, you know, Brad Gilbert did a really good job of saying this in the moment uh, when he was calling the match. You know, Tsitsipas pissed Chorich off. Tsitsipas with his command. Tsitsipas with his just animation, the player box, Mortaloo, Mr. Tsitsipas. And clearly Chorich was upset with it all. And it got to a point where towards the end of that fourth set, and, you know, again, Tsitsipas had Chorich down and out, and he was still barking, and he was still loud, and he was animated. And that's, again, that's Stefano Tsitsipas. So there's nothing wrong with that. 
but you could see in Chorch's eyes it ticked him off, and he just started, you know, at one point he's looking at Tsitsipas and mimicking his command and just fist-pumping directly at him, and George just started making that extra ball. George, and, and that's always been born of George's biggest strength, and it's so funny. I keep saying this. You go back five years ago, if I would have told you, hey, George is playing Tsitsipas, one's the four seed, one's the 27th seed. Which do you pick? You say, oh, the born of George who made the finals of the last year's last two Grand Slams, the one who won the Junior U.S. Open, the guy who's, you know, looked so good already in his young career. George is the fourth seed, and obviously injuries, other factors, you know, losses in confidence, whatever it may be have held him back but no one has ever denied the physical talent of Borna George and when I say physical talent I mean his physicality on court I mean his movement the way he tracks down an extra ball the way when he's right he's taking balls early or he gets you stretched with some sort of backhand down the line or forehand that he took early down the line and he's quick enough to where he just cuts off time so well and moves forward and can get to the net and you know sometimes his volleys are are trouble but you can see he's worked on the situations on getting himself into a position where he knows to move forward he recognizes those situations and you know again he's a quick twitchy athlete as well he can pop that backhand if you leave it for him he can pop the first serve when it's landing although serving issues have also been a part of his problem but you know again his greatest strength has always been his movement his ability to make a match physical and that's what he did in this four and a half hour battle. Again, Borna George, 6 7, 6 4, 4 6, 7 5, 7 6 win in this match. I mean, these guys were battling over three miles of sprints for both of them in terms of distance covered. And I do say sprints because these guys were moving. And, you know, once upon a time, I questioned Stefano Tsitsipas's fitness is the wrong word, but just his upside as a mover, I thought at best he would be good. No, he is a powerful athlete, folks. He moves around the court very well. He can slide into his shots. Again, that's always the sign to me of an elite mover. And physically, he was into this match deep into the fifth, but mentally, he just, he cracked. I mean, it, it was it was remarkable to see in front of us. And I mean, Tsitsipas, for him to even, you know, get that match to a breaker in the fifth. He was up a break 3-2 in the fifth, and then George broke back and held, and then there were just some topsy-turvy holds for, you know, Stefano Tsitsipas. And then he actually had some chances to break George, and he wasn't able to do it and just you know, the backhand betrayed him in the end. There were a lot of shanked returns. There were a lot of mid-rally backhand balls that were shanked wide. The inside and forehand looked elite. And in this match, 36 of 54 at the net. That sounds good, but that number should have been 45, maybe even 50 of 54. But because, you know, there are probably six to 10 volleys you can think of where Tsitsipas just left it short, where he didn't decisively try to knock it off, where he just thought, okay, I just have to make this volley. And with Borna George's physicality, no, you can't just make the volley. You have to put the volley away because if you leave it a little bit short, but he can track that down, he's crafty enough and good enough on the run to get the ball by you. And I mean, there were just some beautiful George lobs in this match. The backhand continues to look beautiful. I think Tsitsipas still probably didn't play enough slice, play enough junk. Although, you know, through the first 
two, you know, three and a half sets really in this match. Tsitsipas did a great job of targeting the George forehand, of going after it, of serving to that side because the George forehand can spray. And in this match, you know, I don't know if this is right, but it says 59 winners to 43 unforced errors for Tsitsipas, 53 winners to 50 unforced errors for George. That feels right for George, for Tsitsipas. Feels like they were being a little bit generous in terms of forced errors, but yeah, Tsitsipas started to spray, you know, all of his volleys started to sit up a little bit. Chorch got a look at a second pass, and you can't give Borna Chorch two passes. And just, you know, mentally, you look at this match and you want to say to yourself, okay, you know, there was a lot of talk. Does Tsitsipas need to make a coaching change? Is it unhealthy for him to have his father as his coach? I don't really know about that. That's not my area of expertise. I would say clearly whatever is going on for Stefano Tsitsipas has been working. You don't get this good, get to your a point where you're the number four seed at an event like this. You're a year-end finals champion at age, what, 22, 23? I think he's a 98 or so, 22. Um, and if, if your coaching isn't correct, if it's not working for you both on and off the court— but I will say mentally, I mean, there were times when he was yelling at his box. There was that moment Mr. Tsitsipas left the box right as I think Tsitsipas was serving for the match. And, you know, that wasn't great. I mean, sure, it was a distraction, but I will never tell the parent not to go watch their kid play. I think that's ridiculous in a coaching capacity. I'm not going to speak to that because I've never had a parent as a coach for, you know, for tennis. But, you know, it's something where it's that high of a pressure scenario. I suppose they're my life coaches, but, and I guess... Yes, that is high pressure, but you get what I'm saying here. It's just for Tsitsipas mentally, this was a letdown, and it, the fact that he didn't fold, by the way, though in the fifth set, that's why I'm having I'm struggling so much with this because if it was that much of a mental letdown after he blows that five-two lead, doesn't he just get bageled in the fifth? That didn't happen. He competed in this match. He got it to seven six in the fifth. And you've seen the tweet afterwards. He says that was simultaneously the funniest and you know the best experience of my career or whatever it was. Um, and you know that's the takeaway. If he can rebound immediately, you know, on the clay and then into the French Open, I'm really not concerned. I think he's the sort of guy who can shake something like this off. For Borna Chorich, this win means so much more to me. The fact that he found himself in that sort of a hole and then dug his way out of it. I mean, for a guy who so often looks so lost on court, because as I mentioned, yeah, he's quick enough to move forward and he can put himself in position to do it, but sometimes he's really stupid about when he moves forward. And sometimes that forehand is just spraying because he's trying to be aggressive when in fact he should just be leveraging his physicality and just making the match more about grinding and making that extra ball. And eventually the court will open up for him. Um, But... I mean, confidence-wise, and he said it, you know, this was a little bit of luck, but a lot of bit of fight, and, you know, he was honest about that, but this is huge for him, and now I think he has a really winnable fourth-round match against Jordan Thompson, and Borna Chorch, if he finds himself in the quarterfinals, again, he's one of those guys I've never been able to quit, because you watch him play, and when it looks right, you just, you know, how can you not feel about him the same way you do about a demon hour? Just defensively what they can do, and physically what they can do when they're healthy, but... I mean, this was a huge win. It was a great match. It's like, again, I, I feel like I've been saying this a lot. The Cam Norrie-Schwartzman match, Nishioka Murray, Chorich, Tsitsipas. This 2020 U.S. Open is a textbook example for why the best-of-five set format actually is exceptional. And I, I don't feel strongly one way or the other on that argument, but this would be an argument very, very much for 
best of five. And another match, that would be an argument of best of five. And I feel like I went quite a bit there on Tsitsipas Torch. It really was that good of a match. But, you know, from here, I'll try and keep these a little bit more brief. Shapovalov versus Taylor Fritz. And, you know, again, worth saying here before we even get into the match. Taylor Fritz served for this match in the fourth set. He was up 5-3 serving, or excuse me, I think he was up, was it 5-3 or 5-4? It doesn't really matter. He was up serving for this match, and he didn't even get to match point. And I mean, he he just played two sloppy games, and it happened in the third set as well. He served for it up 5-3, got broken, uh, ended up breaking back, which is a credit to him, but then he wasn't able to do it again in the fourth set, and in the fifth set, Shapovalov was able to pull away, and, you know, even before we get to the Shapovalov portion of this equation, because, again, too often it's talk about what did one player do wrong, not what did the player who won do right, and Shapovalov did so much right here, but so did Taylor Fritz, and this is why this is an encouraging loss for Taylor Fritz. A, he had this match on his racket. You start there, that's the beginning of any conversation. You say, Taylor, look, I know it's frustrating, and I don't know why I'm saying it like this. Hey, Taylor, I'm your coach. I'm sure this is what he's hearing is, Taylor, I know this loss is frustrating, but you had this match on your racket. You were that good in this one. And you look at the stats for him, 67 of 84, 80% on his first serve. You look for the winner unforced error, the chances he took. You know, 52 winners against 43 unforced errors. He had 15 break chances in this match to Shapovalov's nine. And then even with the lopsided last set, you know, Fritz 143 points in this match, Shapovalov 150. Taylor Fritz was there. He had the match on his racket. And, you know, the first serve, again, for Taylor Fritz, he was popping them. I think he had 140 earlier this week. But there's times when he goes 117 out wide on the deuce. I can't emphasize this enough. That's the hardest serve in the game to hit hard, the out wide on the deuce as a righty. To slice that out wide or flat out wide 117, and there were times when he hit 122 as well. And I think Zverev hit one like 128 over the course of these past, you know, this past week. And you're just like, oh my God. Like, control the controllables is the center of so many tennis philosophies. And the thing you can control the most is your own serve. And that first serve for Taylor Fritz is going to win him so many points. That's part one. Part two. I've talked a lot about on this podcast. If Taylor Fritz can ever learn or, you know, become even an average mover on court, he is going to win so many matches because of his forehand, because or because of his serve, because of his ground strokes, just how easy things come to him on the court. If, you know, athleticism, movement laterally has never been his biggest strength. And, you know, he's got a ton of arm talent, but it's just been, can he get a clean strike on the ball when he's at the move? Uh, he has improved that monumentally. He has moved into, okay, I'm an adequate mover territory. He was tracking down, and Shapovalov has plus, plus, plus power, right? And plus athleticism. And again, we're going to get to Shapovalov in a second, I promise. But Taylor Fritz, through the first four sets, hung with him physically. And that was what was so impressive. It's that, yeah, Shapovalov hits a big forehand, but you're not going to find you know, outside of Novak Djokovic, someone who hits a more natural two-handed backhand than Taylor Fritz. He just absorbs the pace so well, and Shapovalov has given him a ton of spin as well, so he's able to just bunt down flat on that ball, and just, he played so well off of that wing, whether it was going down the line, whether it was going cross-court, just, I mean, he opened up the court with that wing, and then when he got the ball he was looking for, when he was able to find the Shapovalov backhand, he teed off on forehand. So, this was a really impressive performance for me for Taylor Fritz. The biggest 
biggest concern, you know, again, 59% of his first serves isn't good enough, particularly when Denis Shapovalov is going to hit, you know, such a plus-plus power ball, is still able to expose the fact that Fritz is only an adequate mover and not a great mover or not a good mover. And so for him, you know, 46% on the first serve, he gave Shapovalov clean looks when Shapovalov was able to take control. He was able to win points. The second thing is just 59% on the first serve has to be higher when you're playing a match that's this high level because Denis Shapovalov played a really, really good match in this one, folks. 68% on the first serve. That's what you need to do against Taylor Fritz. 76% win percentage on the first serve. Again, when he took control of points, he was able to win them. And the fact that he was able to hold Fritz to such a low percentage on the second serve, that's his, you know, him capitalizing, running around backhands and hitting forehands on that second serve because Fritz has a nice kick, but that nice kick gives Shapovalov time to run around and find forehands in. You know, you know. Credit to Taylor Fritz again. Shapovalov only forty-eight percent on his second serve, but Shapovalov just competed so well in this match because Fritz was playing well and Fritz had chances. And you know, there are times when Denis Shapovalov in the past has just gone away when he's faced deficits. He did not do that in this one. And you look at the stats: sixty winners against thirty-three unforced errors. Again, some of that has to do with Fritz's movement, but even you take out the serve from that equation: thirty-eight winners against twenty-three unforced errors. He was just so good from the ground in this match. He moved forward confidently, 25 of 38. But again, that doesn't count a lot of forced error, missed passing shots from Taylor Fritz. He just, he played such a smart match. And it's the way he competed too. That that has to be a big takeaway. In a match where he had nine points, uh, break points, his opponent had 15. In a match where he was facing the barrel of my opponent is serving for the match. In that game, he played to big targets. He let Fritz get nervous. He just didn't beat himself. He used his athleticism to track down every extra ball. He reined in his own pace at time. Didn't go Mach 7 on every forehand, but just, you know, went Mach 6 on a forehand to open up the court and then went Mach 12 on the forehand down the line once he had enough space and could play to a comfortable margin. It was just a really good performance from Denis Shapovalov, who now finds himself in the fourth round of the U.S. Open and a chance to make his first quarterfinal at a slam. And again, all of these next-gen players continue to play so well. And so it's really impressive, uh, another really impressive win for Shapovalov, who, again, I just think it's a really good matchup for him. Yeah, Fritz loves the pace of Shapovalov, and I think Fritz matches up well against lefties. Uh, but Shapovalov just so explosive in this match. And so it was a really fun one to watch. One last breakdown, and then we'll lump them all together. And this will be a quick breakdown because Naomi Osaka may have gone three sets. Uh, three sets. Hey, great shot to me. We'll leave that in there. Against Marta Kostyuk. Uh, but this match was on Osaka's racket the entire time. And it was just really Naomi Osaka whose level of play wavered in this one. And Credit to Kostyuk, right? She is such a promising young talent. Her firepower, really, really impressive. But, you know, in this match for her, 19 of 23 at the net for Kostyuk, when she was able to move forward, she was playing really aggressive tennis. She had, you know, 36 winners against 51 unforced errors. It shows off her firepower, her decisiveness, her willing to attack. It also shows off that, yeah, she still sprays a little bit, but she was really good in this match. 49% on the first serve. Again, it's little things for her to improve. That's why I like her upside, but for Naomi Osaka, again, the first serve is 
the best shot in women's tennis right now for Osaka. 40 of 49 on first serve points. You know, she was also 23 of 51 on second, uh, 23 of 45, 51% on second serve points. She had 21 break chances in this match versus Kostjuk's eight and just only converted five of them. But 30 winners against 38 unforced errors. Not great, but fine in this match. A lot of power down the center. She let Kostyuk beat herself. But, I mean, Naomi Osaka, it's how she continues to compete, right? She, the, the hamstring's clearly bothering her. She's clearly, you know, not playing her most exceptional tennis. And yet, it's the on-off switch. It's the fact that she goes down 5-2 in the second set. She got it back to a breaker. She really should have won that second set. Just played a bad breaker. And you saw her throw her racket after that. But, I don't know. Osaka Kanteve will tell me everything. If Osaka wins that match, I, I'm, I'm done even having even a sliver of doubt because if Annette Kanteve, who's playing so well right now, can't beat Osaka, I don't think anyone else in the women's game can either. Clean enough performance for Osaka as she advances once again to the fourth round of the U.S. Open. Those were the big breakdowns on the day. Of course, there were a couple of other fantastic matches I want to talk about. It's worth noting, though, George Tsitsipas, the only five-set match on the men's side on the day. We did have one other three-set match on the women's side. Putin save of the 23 seed, knocking off Sasnovich, 3-6-6-2-6-1. That was a really good battle, again, between the two of them, and you knew it was going to be a toss-up. We talked about it on our ace of the day, but Putin save just... So creative. So many different things she can do. She's such a grinder as well. And it got to Sasanovich. You could tell she just made the match physical. And Sasanovich, in the end, just didn't have enough in the tank to hang with Putin Seva. Uh, but you look at the rest of the women's matches, no upsets either. All seeds rocking and rolling. And I will say this because there are a couple of really notable performances from in, in losses. Jessica Pagula has established herself as a top 50 player at a minimum on tour and maybe even a top 30 player on hardcore. She was that good over these past six weeks. Yes, she lost 4-3 and three to Petra Kvitova, but considering how many matches, how much tennis Pagula's played over the past six weeks... It was an incredible performance. She asked every question of Kvitova. She took a 2-0 lead in that second set, I believe. Um, But Kvitova, talk about raising her level. And now she's into the second week of a slam. And, you know, if Kvitova's in the second week of a slam, if Serena's in the second week of a slam, Osaka's in the second week of a slam... Now things get fun, folks. Now now the matches get really, really, really interesting. And they were interesting before, but we are going to be in for a treat for this second week of the U.S. Open. That was a really good performance from JP, though. You know, straight set win from Martich and Conteve, who continue to look great as well. Then Jennifer Brady. Jennifer Brady, I'm not ready to say she can win this U.S. Open, but I'm done saying she can't win this U.S. Open. I mean, Jennifer Brady is unbelievable right now. Straight set win over a confident Caroline Garcia. The serve, the forehand, they're just, they're so decisive. She's playing so confidently and she's winning in straight sets over good opponents routinely. Great win for Jennifer Brady, who looked exceptional in doing so. Shelby Rogers continued to roll. We said this on Ace of the Day. Just Brangle didn't have the weapons to hurt Rogers. A lot of serves, a lot of forehands. Really great, though, to see a healthy Rogers, Shelby Rogers back in the round of 16 because that's where she belongs. That's the sort of talent she has. Uh, Angela Lee Kerber, fantastic win over a really talented young American in Ann Lee. Ann Lee's such a good mover, plays so explosively from the baseline, good off of both wings as well, wants to move forward, but 
Kerber's going to Kerber. She made that extra ball. She elevated the ball 30 feet over the net. She played deep with, you know, great depth in her ground stroke. She just made the match physical, and she did her thing. Now, she was grabbing her leg towards the end of it, and that's just something to monitor. And, you know, Jennifer Brady right now on DraftKings, a decisive favorite in her match against Kerber. It doesn't shock me to hear that, but really, really good performance from uh, Angelique Kerber to get that win over Ann Lee. Those were your women's matches on the men's side. Some notable performances. Novak Djokovic, 3-3-1 over Jan Leonard Struff. Like, lol. Lol. That, that's all I have to say to that. That's just, I mean, Struff played well, too. And then Novak Djokovic is like, no, no. No, no. This is, just so you know, I'm Jan Leonard, you're really, really good. And you deserve every bit of this third-round paycheck. But you're in my way to the fourth round. You're in the way to my next Grand Slam title. Do you mind moving, please? And... Yeah, that's what Novak Djokovic was able to do. That's about as good as I've seen him look on a tennis court uh, since the restart has happened, and he's obviously played some really good matches. So that just tells you where we are at. Anyone betting against Djokovic at this point, you're just asking for heartbreak. Uh, So that was an exceptional win. David Goffin looked really good in a straight set win over Krajinovic. Krajino boosted a straight set over Barankis. Really impressed by young Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, who knocked off Cam Nori uh, in four sets. That was a pick as well, and Davidovich Fokina just physically, guy is really, really talented, and so just great result for him. He's played, what, four sets at a minimum in all three of his matches, and he finds himself in the fourth round of a slam for the first time in his career, so great for Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. I believe now he'll also find himself pretty comfortably in the ATP Top 100. I'll look that up for you as I'm talking through this, but yeah, it was a really impressive, just, you know, Nori kind of lost the thread. The way Schwartzman lost the thread against Nori in the first round, just didn't have a weapon anymore that could hurt him. Um, yeah, that was that was what happened for Nori against Davidovich Fokina. He just started questioning his shot selections, his choices, and yeah, Davidovich Fokina now up to a new career high, number 69 in the live ranking. That's where you want to be as 21-year-old folks. And you know who's right above him at a new career high of 68? Quarantine Moutet. So again, fun time for the next Jenners for sure. Again, we also had a win from Jordan Thompson, straight sets over Mikhail Kukushkin. And then the last match I want to talk about from day five, and again, I'll be brief here. Zirev in five sets over Manorino, 6-7, 6-4, 6-2, 6-2. That's not the story from this match. The story is the fact that Adrian Manorino even got the opportunity to play in this one. And, you know, this match I think was scheduled for like 1 p.m. And then it didn't go on. And then the clock hit 1.30. And then the clock hit 2 p.m. and then everyone on Twitter is asking what's going on here and of course again Manorino one of the people uh, in who was in close enough contact with Benoit Pair that he has been put into advanced COVID protocol by the U.S. Open by the USTA and then there was a dispute and again this reporting comes from Christopher Clary in the New York Times New York State officials overruling New York City officials for a moment saying hey Benoit, you know, Adrian Manorino is violating our health protocols by going to play these matches, and if he was exposed to anyone, he has to be in quarantine. He can't be playing. He can't be exposing others in the event. No, he's not playing this match. And obviously, you can understand the justification for that, 
But there was a, you know, why the players didn't like that? It's just the lack of communication. That's what all of this keeps coming back to. It's that this was just such a snap decision. Then so for a second, they weren't going to allow them to play because it sounded like if they let Manorino play, the the New York wasn't going to allow the event to carry on. And then there was some negotiating. Allegedly, uh, you know, French President Emmanuel Macron was involved. And of course, for so many of these players, they're also, even after they lose this event, they have to stay in New York to quarantine until they've tested negative. You know, I think it's a minimum 10 days or maybe it's 12 days and so you know for a lot of these players they were like hey if we're not going to get to play let us go home and New York saying no and again you can understand there's a reason safety and health guide health guidelines exist it's the constant flip-flopping of these guidelines it's the you know the fact that uh the the inconsistency in the way some of them are applied the fact that there are three players who are also exposed to pair but they kind of have different guidelines and they're able to go do their own thing and these seven players are under more strict guidelines why are they more strict than the ones the other three are playing and why are any of these players even allowed in the draw if they weren't before but now they are. And so it's the confusion, the lack of clear communication. And I just want to be clear. It's very easy to rag on the USTA. They face an impossible task. They're trying to hold an event of this scale in the midst of a global pandemic, you know, the fact that they have a hotel that's only half rented anyways right there, you see a compromise in the bubble, but they're trying to pull off something very, very difficult, impossible. And it's not like they're, you know, the way the NBA, it's 30 teams, right? And you can, so it's only 30 directives. And you're saying, hey, each of you teams here, are your directives, you're responsible for your players or your entire team is screwed. That's not how it works in tennis. It's not 30. It may be fewer people, but it's 128, you know, so two draws, 256 completely different entities, plus their coaches, plus their surroundings. And you're trying to coordinate all of that. And everyone's circumstance is going to be different. And you're trying to, you know, have a clear set of guidelines for every player. But are there exceptions? And clearly, you know, it's very clear that some players matter more than others. And again, this is an impossible task, but you can understand the frustration on the player's You know, it's twofold. One, do you want to tell the players, hey, just kind of get over it. You're competing for the U.S. Open. We all want tennis back. These are the circumstances under which are the only ways we can have tennis. Um, Yeah, that is absolutely half of it. But it's just so unclear what these guidelines are. Why was Adrian Manorino, why were all these players allowed to compete in round one, in round two, but now round three, there's an issue? How does that make sense? And so... It's just all of the uncertainty. That's what's causing, again, so much frustration. We've seen so many players speak out, whether it's Kiki Medenovich, Kristen Flipkins. I mean, the list goes. Manorino even was like, look, I understand the circumstances. It's, again, the confusion. It's the will they, won't they of it all that makes no sense that is having everyone frustrated. But... You know, again, that's just an update on that in terms of the tennis. Alex Virev, really good performance for him. And hey, guess who's figured out how to make fourth rounds of majors, folks? Alex Virev. He's done it a lot now. He did it, what, French Open? He lost first round at the US, uh, at the Wimbledon last year. But then if memory serves me correctly, I believe he made fourth round of last year's U.S. Open. He made semifinals, obviously, of uh, the Australian Open this year. And yeah, then he makes the fourth round here. So in his last six majors, here are the results for Alex Virev. Fourth round, quarterfinals, first round, fourth round, semifinals, fourth round. You know what that sounds like to me, folks? That sounds like a player who's figuring things out. And with that in mind, let me just get to a quick next-gen point, and then we'll wrap today's podcast with a preview of Day 6's matches, although some of them obviously already underway by the time you're listening to this. 
Seven next-gen players identified 21 and under in this category um, have made the third round of the U.S. Open. That's the most since 2008. Here's who did it now versus who did it then. Shapovalov, FAA, Kasper Ruud, Davidovich Fokina, Courtney Moutet, J.J. Wolf. In 2008, it was Djokovic, Delpo, Murray, Chilich, Nishikori, Monfils, Query. Now, obviously, Djokovic, Murray, Delpo, Chilich, slam champions. Do I think four of Shapo, F.A., Rude, Davidovic, Fokina, Mute, and Wolf will win slams? No, I do not. But I think a lot of those players are going to be really, really good. And then you throw those in. Talk about the fact that, again, our breakdowns today were McNally, Chorich, Shapovalov, and Osaka as winners. And you just go a little bit older. That original next-gen campaign, the 96s and youngers, the players who are 24 and you know in that strike zone. How many of them are now in this round of 16 on the men's and uh, on the men's side? I mean, on the women's side, I, we don't need to go through it. The next gen's already here. But on the men's side, all of those players, plus you throw in guys like Medvedev, like Zverev, like Berrettini, and it's no longer the next gen. It's the now gen. I'm going to try and write a little bit more about this to give you some, again, perspective on this generational shift. What's the equivalent for me to tennis's past? I got to look more into that 2007, 8, 9 time range. I also want to look at, you know, 98, 99, 2000. It was really 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003 when the Federer generation started to take off as well. But there are about 30 guys right now. Not 30. That's way too high. Excuse me. There are about 15 guys right now who I can just see being top 20 players for the next 10 years. And that's really exciting because so many of these tens for so long, we're wondering who's going to replace Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Murray once the game takes off. And I mean, you know, Yoshihiro Nishioka, I don't think he's going to be a Grand Slam champion, but I think he's going to be a top 50 player for a really long time. And so I think the game is in really healthy hands. I think the depth is there. It's just a question who's going to emerge as the next Slam champion, and we'll see if anyone's able to do it of late. And of course, we have a bunch of next-gen guys taking uh, taking action in day six as well. So let's end with a quick draw preview there. Wow, 45 minutes, folks, on a Saturday. I mean, if that's not U.S. Open, I don't know what is. Uh, but you look at day six. Let's start with the women's side because, I mean, again, this is where the fun starts, folks. Sloan versus Serena. Don't think I need to make the case for that. That's going to be exceptional. Sakari already knocked off Anisimova. If you listen to Ace of the Day, you knew that might happen. Uh, some other fun ones. Obviously, Mertens, McNally. That's on court right now. Uh, but Azarenka, Sviatek, I talked about that. Two others real quick. If Madison Keys is truly a contender to win this U.S. Open, she'll beat Alize in straight sets. If she's not, she's going to struggle in this match. So I'm watching it closely. And then Kennan and Jabour. I mean, Kennan was dealt a gauntlet of a draw. But Jabour is just a match. She has had Jabour's number. Um, and, I, you know, she beat her in Australia this year. Uh, I just think Jabour likes to play funky, and that's Kennan's ballgame too. And so it's just a bad matchup for Jabour. Uh, but... So many good matches on the women's side. On the men's side, Demon Hour and Hatchinov again taking place as I am recording this, and I believe it's lived up to the hype, but two other fun ones. If Berrettini is a contender to win this, he'll beat Rude closely. I think Casper Rude's really good, though. I think he's going to give Berrettini a lot of trouble today. Same deal with Dominic Team. This is a match 
if you're a contender to win the U.S. Open this year, you beat Marin Cilic in straight sets. Cilic five-set win over Kudla, four-set win over Gombos. It's not the Marin Cilic of 2017-2018. This is a must-win for Dominic Thiem, and he's got to look decisive doing it as well. So a lot of fun tennis to watch. Of course, again, you want to hear our picks. Go check out GSP Ace of the Day. If you have missed out on any of the action, be sure to go check out the mini breaks we've recorded throughout this event. Of course, so much uh, on this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews, and Inside Out Podcast. So be sure to like, rate, subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Go check out our YouTube channel where you can see us make our picks on video each and every night. Always fun to do that because I know super producer Daniel Westoff puts his spin on it. And as always, he has a of an editing job to do with this one as well. But again, be sure to stick around this weekend. We're going to recap week one on video. We're going to preview week two. We're going to have our articles rocking and rolling, everything rolling on our website. So go check it out, crackedrackets.com. You need those more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's at crackedrackets. You want to message me directly. I am at Great Shot Pod. Shout out, as always, to our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar for their continued support. For more, go to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code C. R15. Go to aerobar.com. Use that promo code cracked15. But with that in mind, for our wonderful super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. 